You need to know your purpose. You need to know your purpose. Why are you here? What's your life about? What gives your life meaning and significance? In the Air Force's officer training school, they kept saying to us, you need to know your why. Why did you join? Why are you putting up with us yelling at you? Why are you getting up at 4.30 every day? Because you won't let me not get up at 4.30. That's the answer. That why question applies to everybody. What's, what's your why? Why do you get up every day? Why do you study? Why do you go to work? Why do you keep changing diapers and disciplining your kids? What's underneath all of this stuff that we do? What, if anything, gives them meaning? Another way you could ask it is, what's the point in life? This is one of the most important questions. And for lack of a real answer, I believe, is a major contributing factor to things like depression, anxiety, aimlessness, anger, alcoholism, helplessness. I have to wonder how much of our society's numbing addiction to entertainment is simply an effort to dull the pain of not knowing what the heck to do with ourselves. You need to know your purpose. I said you need to know your purpose. So here's what I want to do. <laughs> Man, I tell you what, Siri is dangerous. If you didn't hear that, I think Mary Margaret's phone said, what did you say again? So here's what I want to do. I want to tell you your purpose. Unbeliever, I want to tell you your purpose. Believer, I want to tell you your purpose. And I realize it may sound too fantastical or too arrogant to be true, but what I want to persuade you of this morning is this. Your purpose is to live for the glory of God by living for the good of others that they may be saved. That's your purpose. Would you turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. It's on page 958 in the blue Bibles in front of you. If you have your Bibles open and if you have your bulletin outline in front of you, you're going to be all set this morning. And before we jump into the text, I just want to read my theme statement for you again. Your purpose is to live for the glory of God by living for the good of others, that they may be saved. Now, you may not be doing that right now, or you may not be doing it very well, but let me tell you, neither was the Corinthian church, and that's why Paul wrote this whole section that began in 8 and concludes this morning with 11 chapter 1, with chapter 11 verse 1. 
Here's what they were doing. Honestly, they were living more out of self-interest than out of anything else. And that's why they were all about their freedoms. So they wanted to know, hey, Paul, is X or Y or Z sin? If it is, then I guess we shouldn't do it. But if it's not, then we can do it, right? So here's what they were doing. In 8 through 10, Paul says, listen, that's not the way you should think about things. It's not just a matter of, is this sin or not? So in 8, he argues that they should choose what's best for their brothers and sisters' spiritual progress instead of making use of their freedoms. He follows up in chapter 9, and he gives himself as an example. I got got all sorts of freedoms, he says. Freedom to take along a wife on my missionary journeys. Freedom to be fully financially supported by you. Freedoms, freedoms, freedoms. I've got them, but I don't use them because what matters more to me is the progress of the gospel in the lives of others, not my freedoms. So if my freedoms hinder the progress of the gospel in somebody's life, I'm not going to make use of my freedoms. Simple as that. Now, here's something else you should just know. This is free. If your approach to life, friend, is whatever's not sin is fair game, if that's your approach to life, you're likely going to end up in sin. It's like the dating couple that asks, how far is too far? That's just not the best question. A better question is, how can we date in the most godly way? I'll just tell you, the couple that says that is going to stay further away from sin than the couple who's asking, how far is too far? And the same idea is true here. If your grid in life is whatever is not sin, I guess God's cool with that and I can do it. If that's your grid in life, you are more likely to fall into sin. And that's exactly what the Corinthians were doing. And that's why we have chapter 10 where Paul tells them, listen, in your pursuit to live out your freedoms in Christ, you're actually falling into outright idolatry. And you need to repent. Be careful to distinguish, brothers and sisters, between freedoms and outright idolatry. You are not free to do that. So that's just a little review of this section. And today he just ties a bow on it. And the essence of the text is this. Live for something greater than your freedoms. Live for the glory of God, which translates into living for the good of others. So look at the text with me. Verse 23. All things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. This is a call to distinguish between what you're free to do and what's actually good for others. All things are lawful is probably a quote from the Corinthians writing to Paul. So this is, this is actually their words, and he's quoted this before in chapter 6, verse 12. All things are lawful, right, Paul? First of all, that is, it is not true, okay? All things are not lawful. Idolatry is not lawful, chapter 10. 
Lawsuits against believers are not lawful. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Sexual immorality is not lawful. Chapter 5. Failing to pursue church discipline when there's sin in the church is not lawful. Chapter 5. So don't misunderstand this as an absolute statement. Now, it is a true statement when it comes to things that aren't sin. But... Not all things are helpful. Not all things build up. You are free to do certain things. But even the things that you're free to do, those things may not be helpful to others. Those things that you are free to do may not build up others' faith. Those things that you're free to do may not be helpful for the progress of the gospel in the lives of others. So what should you do? Thank you for asking. Look at verse 24. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. Listen to me, church. The grid to run your life through, according to Scripture, is not, am I free to do this? That is an insufficient, a woefully insufficient grid. The grid you should run your life through is this. How can I bless others? How can I serve others? How can I do others real spiritual good? And that is a life-altering paradigm. Because it takes you out of the center of your universe and it puts other people at the center of your universe. It says to you, you actually aren't supposed to live for you. You're supposed to live for the spiritual good of others. Who are the others? Well, really everybody. Your fellow church members, for sure, that's the explicit burden of chapter 8. But it's also non-believers, as we'll see in this case study that comes up. So just think with me for a second about two truths. I pray this sinks in. I need this to sink in. You need this to sink in. First truth. The gospel compels us to an others-oriented way of life. Let each of you look not to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves. What mind? The mind of Christ. Who, though he was in the very form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking on the form of a servant, being being found, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death even death on a cross. That's Philippians chapter 2. The gospel says, you're not supposed to live for you. You're supposed to live for the eternal well-being of others. And that's what Jesus did. He did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. He did not assert his freedom to remain in the heavenly courts with the Father and the Spirit. He humbled himself by taking on flesh, by becoming a man, and by dying on the cross. And why did he do that? For your spiritual good. To take the penalty we deserve for our sins against an almighty and infinitely great God so that all who repent and believe will be saved. He did it for our salvation. This is the ultimate example of not living for self-interest. 
And the gospel says, you need to embrace the same way of life. And the other truth to reflect on is this. The gospel calls us beyond do not harm other people. It calls us positively to do good to people. Verse 24 does not say don't harm others' faith. It's not just neutral. It's a positive command. Seek the good of your neighbor. We must actively seek and do what helps and edifies others. We must actively seek and do what forwards the progress of the gospel in the lives of those that God has placed us near. This is a paradigm shift. The dominant messaging in the world we live in that resonates with every single one of our hearts is do what's best for you. Do what's enjoyable to you. Do what builds you up. Do what resonates with you. And this is not just the messaging of the world. This is the messaging of our own hearts. And so some of you, maybe the the homebody-ish ones, you hear about men's the men's or women's retreat, and your instincts immediately say, probably not. It's not my thing. It's just not something I'd enjoy. It doesn't particularly resonate with me. Is that you? Brothers and sisters, Paul would tell you there's a whole other factor you need to consider. The opportunity for you to do good to your brothers and sisters. By going and getting to know them more, you can more accurately pray for them. By going and getting to know them more, you can bear their burdens and share their joys more. By going and being around them more, you can speak into their lives more, and they too have the opportunity to speak into your life. So you get to serve them, and they get to see serve you. This is a huge, life-changing paradigm. These verses say to you, Remove yourself from the center of your life grid. That life grid that shapes your priorities and your thoughts and your actions, take yourself out of the center of that and put the spiritual well-being of others smack dab in the center of that. All things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Let no one seek his own good but the good of his neighbor. Now in what follows, we, we have a little case study in the lives of the Corinthian church. Now this is going to feel a little culturally separated from us, but all it is is teasing out this principle that issues in the issues that they themselves were dealing with in particular. So look at verse 25. Eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any question on the ground of conscience. For the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. If one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you're disposed to go, eat whatever is set before you without raising any question on the ground of conscience. So follow me. Corinth is filled with temples to false gods, okay? And those temples, animals are sacrificed there. And some of the meat is consumed as part of the pagan worship service. Christians are not permitted to take part in that, chapter 10, verses 14 through 22. 
But some of the meat is sold in the local first century Hannaford and is put out in the market. And Christians are free to eat that, even though it's been offered to an idol. Why? Because the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. That's a quote from Psalm 24.1. In other words, even though the meat was offered and sacrificed to an idol, it's actually part of God's good provision of food for his people. That cow and that meat, praise God, belong to God. And he's the only God. Idols are a figment of man's imagination. So you can eat it. You can eat it. Hence, if a non-Christian invites a Corinthian believer over to dinner, where meat is served that might have previously been offered to an idol, if the believer is disposed to go, he can go and he can eat that food. It's okay. And what a great thing that is, dinner with an unbeliever, because it's an opportunity to do that unbeliever spiritual good to engage that unbeliever in spiritual conversation, to develop a relationship with him or her, and to talk about things that matter. Praise God, I hope you are disposed to go to dinner with the unbeliever. But, verse 28, if someone says to you, this has been offered in the sacrifice, then do not eat it. For the sake of the one who informed you and for the sake of conscience. I I do not mean your conscience, but his. So here's a wrinkle. Let's say you're sitting down to dinner and the unbeliever informs you that the ribite for tonight's meal was offered in sacrifice to Aphrodite. Does that change things for you as you're looking at that medium rare steak? Yes, it does. Because presumably your host is telling you that because he has a sense that you Christians aren't supposed to have anything to do with idols. And he knows that this was offered to an idol. And so eating food offered to idols is probably wrong for you. And so he's telling you because he thinks he's a good host and he doesn't want you to do anything that's against your religion. What should you do? Well, pick up in halfway through 28. Then do not eat it. For the sake of the one who informed you and for the sake of conscience. I don't mean your conscience, but his. Translation, don't eat it. Why? Because you're thinking about the spiritual well-being of your host. You're thinking about the progress of the gospel in your host's life. If you eat, and he thinks it's wrong for Christians to do that, then he walks away thinking, I guess idolatry is no biggie for Christians. That does not help him come to faith in Jesus. Do you see? Now, I think Paul anticipates an objection here. Pick up in verse 29. For why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? If I partake with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of that for which I give thanks? This verse essentially says, but if I'm free to do it, why should it matter what this guy thinks? You know what the answer is to that? (laughs) Just stamp this on your forehead. The answer is, it's not about you. That's the point of the whole section. It's not about what you're free to do. 
It's about what's helpful for the progress of the gospel in others' lives. And in this context, his life. And do you know why this is so important? It's because living for the progress of the gospel is how we live for the glory of God. Look at verse 31. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all for the glory of God. Give no offense to the Jews or to the Greeks or to the church of God. Just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Christian, we live for the glory of God. I talked earlier about purpose. I I talked earlier about your why. Why are you here? Here's why you're here. You're here to live for the glory of God. There is an almighty, eternal, all-knowing, all-just, all-wise, all-gracious God in heaven. And you are here to lift up his name. You are here to see to it that he gets the praise that he deserves. You are here so that the world sees just how awesome and glorious and mighty and incredible the God of the universe that we serve is. That is your purpose. Side note. How wonderful is it that God reveals your purpose to you? He doesn't leave you in the dark. He doesn't ask you to go on a journey of self-discovery. He doesn't only reveal it to the special. He reveals it to everybody. He wants you to know, here's why you exist. It's to glorify my name. But just a reality check. How do we do that? Great concept. Glorify God. I like it, BJ. How do we do it? What in the world does it actually mean? Listen to me. God is so good, He hasn't only revealed your purpose. He has revealed how you do it. You do it by living for the good of others that they may be saved. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. What's he saying there? Well, connect it to the previous context. Whether you eat that ribeye or not, or whatever you do, what should motivate you is doing spiritual good to others. That is how we should take it. We know that's how we should take it because of what he says in the further verses. It cements this reality. Look at verse 32. Give no offense to the Jews or to the Greeks or to the church of God, just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many that they may be saved. Seek the spiritual good of everybody. Jews, Greeks, the church of God. That's everybody. The Jews, the religious. The Greeks, the godless. 
And the church is, of course, the church. Labor to give no offense to any of these. Now, a word of clarification. Offense doesn't mean never make anybody mad by what you say or do. This isn't the 11th commandment that our culture has just recently created that says thou shalt be nice and never says anything and never say anything that offends anybody. That's not what this is saying. I think it's actually important to to make that caveat because what our culture has actually done is follow me. What our culture has done is actually defined what's right and wrong by whether or not it hurts somebody's feelings. So, if you say something that hurts their feelings, by definition, that's wrong. And you need to repent. Air quotes around repent. And that is deeply unbiblical, and that is not what Paul says here. But what Paul is saying here is what he's been saying in all of 8 through 10. Act, speak, live out of a desire, out of a motivation to see others saved. Do not act, speak, live out of a desire to please yourself. Act, speak, live so that others may be saved. Be imitators of me, Paul says, as I am of Christ. Brothers and sisters, that salvific motive that drove Jesus Christ to Jerusalem and the cross is the same salvific motive that drove Paul to endure all that he endured. And it is the same motive that should drive us away from our enslavement to comfort and freedom and safety and nice lives and make us think, I want to see people saved. What's your purpose? It's to live for the glory of God by living for the good of others that they may be saved. And now I want us to ask, what does that look like for us? And first what I want to do is I actually want to speak to the many non-Christians that are in this room. What I want to tell you is this is not something God wants from you. This is something God wants for you. Non-Christian, God wants to bless you. And honestly, that is shocking. It is shocking because although He, He made you and He sustained your life, He sustains it even up until this moment. Although that's true, you have not given him his due. You, you have not loved him. You have not served him. You have not sought to glorify his name. You have sought to live for and love whatever it is that you're interested in right now. However old you are at this point, you have lived your life for whatever it is that interests you. This is terrible sin. You have lived your entire life not giving God His due. And yet God still wants 
to bless you. You do not deserve his blessing. You deserve his judgment and his wrath. But he wants to bless you. He wants to reconcile you to himself. He wants to free you from the chains of self-obsession. Do you know why he sent Jesus into the world? He sent Jesus into the world to take the wrath you deserve upon himself so that you can be forgiven. That's why Jesus died on the cross and rose again. It was to pay the price for your selfishness, of your self-seeking, of your enslavement to everything self and your desire to control your whole life. And this morning, if you will recognize your dreadful state and trust in His Son Jesus to forgive you, He will forgive you. He will forgive you of your selfishness and of everything else. And He will take you as His own. You will become His son and His daughter, accepted, loved, promised eternal life forever. Unbelievable. And then, as if those riches aren't embarrassing enough, He wants to turn around and give you real meaning and real purpose in your life. He wants you to know that you can live for something that actually matters. He wants you to know that you can live for the most satisfying mission ever, the glory of His name. Great Scott, that's enough to set anybody on fire. And so what I want for you to do is respond. Turn from your sin and trust in His Son. If your heart is stirring, please don't leave today without determining to do something about that. I'd suggest beginning with talking to a mature Christian and asking him or her more about what it looks like to repent and believe in Jesus Christ. Now, brothers and sisters, what should you do? Number one, get a heart for lost souls. There are thousands of people around us who are dying and going to hell. And the fact that it does not move us is a problem. And the fact that we would insist on living our own comfortable lives ordered around our own comfortable preferences and interests is a tragedy. And the fact that our preferences and our interests are not explicit sin, explicit sin doesn't make it any less of a tragedy. Are you living for the glory of God? And don't answer the question in the affirmative yet before I ask you this. Are you living for the progress of the gospel in others' lives? That's what it means to live for the glory of God. And so maybe you, like me, this week, as I've prepared, maybe you have some repenting to do. Repenting for being more interested in and motivated by and caught up in your own preferences and comforts and freedoms. Maybe we're not all that dissimilar from the Corinthians after all. 
So determine today. Determine today to get a heart for lost souls. For lost souls and for saved souls. Because we want to see the gospel go forward in the lost. And we want to see the gospel go forward in the found. Because remember, our role in each other's lives as members of this church is to help each other get to heaven. We move the gospel forward in each other's lives as believers. So this actually isn't just talking about evangelizing the lost. It's about keeping the found saved. And so with that in mind, number two, number one, was get a heart for lost souls. Number two is connect your relationships to the glory of God. Connect your relationships to the glory of God. Do you realize that every single relationship you have is an opportunity to do others real spiritual good? This changes how you view everybody. Your kids, your friends, your home group, your neighbors, the parents on your kids' basketball team, your boss. This changes how you view everybody. Everybody now becomes an opportunity for you to bless spiritually. Every person, every interaction with every person is actually a golden opportunity to bless them. Whether it's merely by a kind word modeling the kindness of God, whether it's merely by stopping what you're doing when they need something, modeling the selflessness of God, whether it's merely by seeking them out to talk to them about anything, modeling God's interest in others, every interaction is an opportunity to bless, even if it's what we might consider very insignificant. Now, of course, we want more significant conversations and interactions But let's not discount the insignificant. Let's be intentional at the level of the insignificant. And if we are, I would suggest to you we will not miss out on the greater ones. What incredible good would be done if we woke up each day and said, Lord, may I intentionally seek to bless those that you put in my path today. Lord, may I intentionally seek to bless those that you put in my path today. My family. My coworkers, my random interactions at Georgia Market or the dollar store when it's not locked in the middle of the day. My brothers and sisters in Christ. Lord, give me the eyes of Christ today not to have a to-do list, but to have a to-serve list. People, Lord. People, Lord, are my priority. And think about this. When we connect our relationships to the glory of God, it changes the relational dynamic of all of our relationships. Because it takes you out of the center of the relationship and it puts the other person at the center. And this changes then how you interact with people. It means you don't hope that somebody seeks you out to ask how they can pray for you. It means you seek them out and ask you how... You ask them how you can pray for them. 
It means you don't hope someone invites you over for a meal. It means you go over and invite them over for a meal. It it means you don't skip home group because you'd rather stay in your PJs. It means you go because you just want to bless somebody. It, It means when you look for friends, you're not doing it because you need to fill your friendship bucket. It means you seek out friends because you want to do them good. Look, this changes your calendar. How you fill it is informed by a desire to bless and serve others. This changes your priorities. What's important to you is informed by a desire to bless and serve others. Look, relationships are ground zero for moving the gospel forward in the lives of others. You need to get that clear in your mind and heart. And you need to repent if you think about relationships in a mostly What's satisfying to me way? What makes me feel good way? What do my kids want way? That's relationship viewed through the lens of self and not the lens of the glory of God. And this syncs up with the last point. Number three, connect the way you approach church to the glory of God. Here's a burden that I just have for our church. And I don't think it happens only in our church. I think it happens in every church. That said, I am burdened at the degree to which I believe a self-serving attitude is a current in our church. I'm afraid that we often still approach church in a fundamentally self-oriented way. For instance... Does any thought run like this? Does any thought like this run through your mind? And please be honest. I will involve myself in ministries or activities insofar as I enjoy them or I think they will benefit me or be satisfying to me in some way. Therefore, if I don't particularly think I will enjoy X or Y or Z, it is not a priority for me. Thinking like this leads to words like this. If I don't have kids in Awana, why would I serve? It's way past my stage in life. Let other people serve in that way. Well, here's why you should serve. Because it's an opportunity to live for the glory of God by advancing the gospel in the lives of precious kids. Not because it has anything to do with your kids. For some of you, this is why you're actually apathetic spiritually. This is why you have little passion for God. It's because the way you approach things isn't connected to the glory of God. To the calling and purpose that God has on your life to forward His gospel. So the way you think about home group or men's prayer or even sermons, it's bound up in whether or not it strikes you. And it's not as bound up in the glory of God. Make this your prayer today. God, I want to glorify you. I want to know you. Not so that I can just be content with a life that isn't headed for destruction. I want to know you. Not so that I can feel emotionally put together and not a wreck. 
I want to know you not so that I have a nice and comfortable life, not so that I have a nice church with nice friends and nice and safe activity for my kids. What I want, Lord, is to glorify your name. What I want, Lord, is to live for your glory, which means living for the good of others. Oh, God, this is not natural to me. I need your help. Please help me. Brothers and sisters, God will honor prayers like that. Prayers like that reflect Jesus. Prayers like that reflect Paul. Prayers like that reflect a heart that's on a trajectory towards God being glorified through sinners being saved and through saints being edified, through you investing in others. Pray with me. Lord, thank you that you have given us purpose to glorify your name by seeking the eternal good of others. Help us, Father, to embrace this more and more In Jesus' name, amen.